Tonight we uh, begin what is a continuation of our series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, so this is the final part uh, of 1 Corinthians. I mentioned this this morning. We've been looking at, at this letter uh, probably since the end of 2018. So it's been like four years we've been studying 1 Corinthians. Not the entirety of four years, but at different points. Um, so this is the final part. This will take us right up until Christmas this year. Just a few months away, guys. <laughs> Uh, you might have been around when we were last back in First Corinthians uh, in the spring of this year. Um, and we started to dig a bit into chapter 15. Uh, we'd spent time reflecting on Paul's uh, big emphasis on, on these verses. So we thought about God's church, God's gospel and God's grace. And tonight we're continuing Paul's train of thought in First Corinthians 15. Uh, we're looking together at verse 12 through to 20. So verse 12 through to 20, the title for this series as we look at this particular segment of 1 Corinthians, over the next few weeks will be a new life. So we think about the resurrection. Uh, we're thinking about this subject of new life as it relates to the resurrection. And in, in particular, we're thinking about the role that faith plays in the new life that we have together in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, let's have a look. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. I'm reading from the CSB. The words are going to be up on the screen as well. So Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Amen. Let's just take a moment to pray. So, Father, we... We recognise that it's impossible for us to understand uh, what your word says unless your Holy Spirit reveals to us, unless your Holy Spirit opens our hearts and minds and gives us clarity and conviction. So Lord, we pray that, that this time tonight would be a sacred time where we hear very clearly from you through your word and that we would also not just understand what is said, we would be convicted and challenged by what is said and we would choose to respond in faith and obedience as we go into this week. We commit this time to you, Lord. We ask that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, new life through faith. Um, faith is at the very heart of our understanding and response to the resurrection. This is why we're looking at this today. And there are two absolutely essential verses as we understand what faith is and how faith impacts our lives. If you love and follow Jesus today, if you want to love and follow Jesus more and more, then this has to be how it is your life is governed and led. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 and in verse 1, Now faith is a reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And he unpacks this definition of faith a bit more in verse 6 of the same chapter. We read, now, without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. So we can say tonight from these two very important verses, faith is about two things. Faith is about hope and faith is about belief. Uh, to understand the difference between hope and belief is to understand that faith has both a future and present day reality to it. With regards to the future, I hope we can look forward uh, to that day that God has planned for us. God will make all things new, including ourselves, our bodies. With regards to the present, we recognize it, that God is doing this act of renewal day after day. As we choose to live by faith, God is working in our life. So we look ahead to all that God has planned for us as we think about eternity through the lens of what it is God's doing right now. And it's both of those aspects when we think about faith. Now, what's God doing now? But also, what does God have planned for us in the future? To give you an example of faith or many examples of faith, I just want to encourage you to take some time to read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 and look at the lives of Abel, of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, of Sarah, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph, of Moses, of Rahab, and many, many others who aren't named within that chapter. What do you see in their lives as they sought to live in faith? You see men and women of God believing God in the present out of a hope for what God had in the future. They believed that God existed. They believed that God would reward them as they sought him. And they held on to this incredible truth that the God of the universe had this desire to be with them and to help them, to transform them, and to lead them into greater paths of righteousness. Can I just be really open and honest with you tonight? Transparent. I'm really excited about more and more living that kind of life. And I hope you're the same. You're really excited about the possibility of living a life of faith. One that looks ahead, super excited, super um, just focused on, on all that God has planned for us in the future, but also recognizing this impacts our present day reality. In light of all that God is going to do, this affects today. It's a win-win. We spent time last week thinking about C.S. Lewis and, and I quote, we aim at heaven, we get both heaven and earth. We aim at earth, we get neither. And it's that reality. Fix your eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, which is the next chapter, Hebrews 12. So we've titled this morning, not this morning, sorry guys, my notes here. <laughs> we've titled tonight, New Life Through Faith. Because to have faith is to have hope in God. And in particular, is to have hope that God's resurrection promise will one day be fulfilled. So you could easily say from this verse in Hebrews tonight, and from so much of what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, dot, 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 the coming resurrection for all those who are in Christ. That's in many regards just an unpacking of what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. Paul recognized the importance of hoping for the resurrection through Christ as we today live lives of faith. I wonder tonight, how often, how often do you think and meditate and reflect on all that God has planned for you? How often do you think about the fact that you will be resurrected one day? As we've just sang, how often do you think about this amazing eternity with Christ? How much of your life is governed around that reality? 
Let's be honest, we can think about a thousand different things. We can focus on a thousand different things. It's very easy for our hearts to be led towards the things of this earth and not towards the things of Christ in eternity. It's important we take this promise of a resurrection seriously because the danger is that we fall into the trap of a particular group within the church in Corinth in Paul's day. And Paul here in our passage is writing to this group and also to the church as a whole. So he recognises there's this particular group who have a skewed understanding of the resurrection, but he also is aware of the fact that this might have an impact in a negative sense upon the entire church. So he's writing about this subject of the resurrection. Paul was writing to a people whose backdrop was the ancient Greco-Roman world. They, be they believed that when someone died, that was it. Uh, their life was extinguished, uh, or they found themselves in some lesser form in the underworld. The most educated people in the city of Corinth had argued that any notion of any kind of afterlife was a tale or a myth that had no foundation in fact. And it's why at the start of chapter 15, what we looked at back in the spring, Paul grounds the resurrection of Jesus on historical fact, with particular mention of those who are eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus, something we'll look at in a moment. Paul wants these Corinthians to understand, and particularly those who have been or had been misled by Corinthian culture, that the resurrection of Jesus and his bride, the church, was not some silly tale. It was absolute truth. So what Paul does in verse 12 is really just to get a stick in to probe at this idea, this idea that the resurrection isn't real. And so he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Like he's just saying to these guys, what, what are you thinking? This, this makes no sense whatsoever. In light of all that God has done in our lives, in light of all that he has demonstrated, how can you then say as a result of all of that, there is no re resurrection of the dead? Uh, when you zoom in on the church within this region and when you focus in on this issue and in so many other issues, there was a group who had this blend of Corinthian culture and Christian belief. And it wasn't they were outright heretical. We just had this kind of mild heresy that was kind of mixed in with Christian thought and understanding. They believed the claims of the Christian faith up until a certain point. They believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead, and that's very important. But they didn't believe that the resurrection applied to everyone. So they recognized Jesus did rise from the dead, but they didn't believe that the resurrection applied to all people. Paul here is saying, you can't separate the two guys. It's impossible. You can't say that Christ has been risen from the dead, uh, and those who aren't in Christ uh, won't be risen from the dead. If one reality is true, the other reality is true as well. And oppositely, if one reality is false, the other will also be false. So Paul says here, how can you believe this, guys? How can you believe that Christ has been risen from the dead and not believe this, that God has a plan to resurrect the entire church? It makes no sense whatsoever. So this is Paul's argument, and he gives them five reasons why the resurrection is for all. Let's just take some time tonight to examine what is it he states to the Corinthians within this passage. So he's basically saying, if, it, if it's true that we will not be raised with Christ, who has been raised, Paul says, then, if that is true, then the reality is Christ has not been raised, verse 13. 
She's basically, he's unpacking the implications of this wrong understanding about Christ. She says, if Christ has been raised, but we will not be raised, then point number one, Christ hasn't actually been raised. Verse 13, have a look at what he says. If there is no resurrection of the dead, i.e. all of us, then not even Christ has been raised. Very simple, but very, very important. It's impossible for Christ to be raised, for you to be in Christ, and for you to then not be raised one day. You can't separate these two realities. They come together as a package. Why does Paul say this? Why is he so strong in this point as a consequence of not believing in the resurrection? Well, one of the, if not the, central themes of Paul in his New Testament writing is this idea of union with Christ. And it's, it's everywhere in Paul's writings. Anywhere you read Paul, you'll see this emphasis in him, in Christ. We are one with him. One commentator notes, this thought appears in Paul's letters around 216 times. So you get it. Paul is, is really wanting us to understand this, this absolute essential truth that we are one with Christ. We can't separate that. And this central idea of union with Christ, of being in Christ, is this reality that we are identifying with his own death and his own resurrection. So to highlight one of many examples of Paul making this point earlier on in this letter, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 and 14 to 15, and it'll be up on the screen for us, Paul says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. So he says, your bodies are part of Christ's body. We're one. We're one with Christ. Our bodies are part of Christ's body. Paul says something similar, Romans 7, this time with regards to not just the resurrection, but also as it relates to Jesus' death on the cross. So have a look at verse 4. This is a long verse, but such an important verse for us understanding this idea of union with Christ. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, <clears throat> you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, union with Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we belong to the one who was raised. We're one with him when he dies. We're one with him when he's raised. Paul's argument is that as Christ died for our sins, we are dead to our sin. What good news that is for each one of us. It no longer has power over us. Some of us need to hear that tonight. Sin no longer has power over us. Sin will have power over us if we're not in Christ. But if we, if we are in Christ tonight, sin no longer has power. And his argument is that as Christ rose from the dead, we will one day rise from the dead. In order that we, as we read in Romans 7 here, we might bear fruit for God. So there's a purpose for this, this resurrection. We're looking ahead to that day of, of resurrection. And in the process, we're bearing fruit, both in this life and in the life to come. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, can't separate these ideas. Cannot separate these ideas. We're one, and that means resurrection of Christ, resurrection of the church. And he's warning to the church is this, don't try and blend your Christianity with different ideas of the world. This is something that, that the church does today. We, we, we want a wee bit of Jesus, but we also want to kind of be accepted and loved by the world. So we often kind of syncretize 
our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, when I married Pauline, um, which was such a, a precious moment in my life, I also married into all this really cool stuff. Uh, so a two-bedroom flat, a convertible car, which was a bit of a nightmare, to be honest, nice clean carpets, a whole array of lovely kitchenware. Um, I even married into a functioning Hoover, unlike mine, which was from Argos, which was like 35 quid. Now, let me just be clear, all of this cool stuff is not why I married Pauline, but I married her obviously because I love her. But the truth is, her blessings became my blessings. We were one in every sense of that word. So I received all of these blessings in my life. And in the same way, your marriage with Christ, it's not just you loving God and God loving you. There are, and that's obviously an amazing truth, and I don't want to minimize that in any way whatsoever, but there are also tremendous blessings. When we become one with Christ, we receive all of these incredible realities. It means that you receive all the blessings that Christ has. God looks at you and he sees Christ. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As Christ is righteous, you are righteous. And just try and get your head around that. As Christ is righteous, you are also righteous. That will change your life if you truly understand what that means. And as Christ has been loved by the Father, you have been loved by the Father. Sometimes we think that God the Father loves his son and it's maybe more than how he loves each one of us, but that's not true. The same love that God has for his son is the same love he has for each one of us. John 17, 23, Jesus prays to his heavenly father, I am in them and you are in me, again, union with Christ, so that they may, they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God has loved us as he has loved his own son. How incredible is that? The love that God has for his own son is the same love he has for you. Again, that will change your life if you really understand what it means. And as Christ has been raised, we will also be raised. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, for we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him, in other words, God will resurrect those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. So Paul's initial point here is that none of what you are saying here, Corinthians, makes any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Come to, to reality and receive all that God in Christ would want to give you, including the gift of the resurrection. If he has been raised, you will be raised. Get it, Corinth. And for us tonight, we have to get this. This is like the beating heart of our Christian faith. So Paul continues to make his point and he says in the first part of verse 14, that if the resurrection is not true for you and for me, then point number two, he's just unpacking these different arguments. Number two, our preaching is useless. Our preaching is useless. The first part of verse 14, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. That word vain in the Greek, it means of no use, no value to anyone. There's no benefit to anyone if our proclamation is in vain. So to preach that Christ will be resurrected, but we in turn won't be resurrected, 
It's to preach a message that is of no benefit at all. No one will be spiritually renewed or transformed by that kind of message. In fact, worse, they'll find themselves in spiritual no man's land. Without question, as we think about our lives, there's a connection between what is preached and taught and the spiritual health of those who hear. So if you go to a church where the gospel is not preached, you'll find people not living lives that are reflective of the gospel. You go to a church that does not recognize God's word as authoritative, you'll find a people who have not let, who have let other things be their final authority within their life, whatever that might be. Um, you go to a church where the gospel is preached and the Bible is recognized as a final authority, then you'll find people living in the power of the gospel through the spirit under the authority of the word. So it's just really important we understand tonight the health of any given sheep is determined by the loving care and support of the shepherd or shepherds. And a big part of this is what the shepherds feed the sheep. So Paul here says that a message that in reality is of no use or value to anyone will result in sermons and preaching that will be of no use to anybody, full stop. We are what we have been fed and we are what it is that we are feeding off of day to day. There was a study done by the BBC just back in 2017, so not too long ago. It was during Easter. So it was asking people within the church, people outside the church, people in the periphery, just a number of questions about what they believed about God. And a, a quarter, so 25% of people who described themselves as Christians. So within this big survey, the group who said they were Christian, 25% of people in Great Britain, of Christians in Great Britain, said they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, they didn't say that they didn't specifically believe in the resurrection of the church, which is a Corinthian heresy we're looking at tonight. No, they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So it's even worse than this issue in Corinth. This issue in Corinth, they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't believe that, that the church would one day rise. But these believers, these believers in the UK, through this survey, they neither believed in the resurrection of Jesus, nor in the future resurrection resurrection of those who would claim to follow Christ. Now, when I read that this past week, it left me asking a question, on what basis do they not believe? Why did they come to this conclusion? How do they function as believers if they don't have a resurrection within their hearts? Without question, there's probably a whole host of different reasons for why. I think one of the key reasons will be down to the fact that they, they sat under a sermon or they sat under sermons or a time or times of teaching where the truth of the resurrection was either assumed, neglected, or outright rejected. And Paul's point here is that any teaching that doesn't have a resurrection as it's, with its beaten, as its beaten heart, it's just a, it's a complete waste of time. It's of no benefit to anyone it's destructive in every possible way. What do we have to preach if the resurrection is true? Why am I up here if the resurrection isn't a future reality for each one of us tonight? Who's going to benefit from preaching and teaching if the resurrection is not true? You know, I'd be better 
standing up here reading Harry Potter or the Guardian newspaper or some other religious text, if we didn't have that hope of a resurrection. So Paul continues uh, with this argument of the consequences for you and for me if a resurrection is not true. And he says, if that is the case, if a resurrection isn't true, then point number three, our faith is worthless. So our preaching is pointless. Number three, our faith is worthless. Have a look at the second part of verse 14. Paul, Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. So is your faith. In other words, not only is our preaching a complete waste of time, so is your faith. Your faith has no value, no purpose whatsoever. As we spent time looking at already tonight, what is there to believe in? What is there to hope in if you don't have a resurrection to look forward to? Why would we choose to live a life for Jesus and in Christ if none of it was actually true? Why would we do that? If there wasn't this incredible hope of God renewing and restoring us back to himself, why would we live the way that we live if it wasn't true? I don't know if you experience this within your own life, but for myself, when times are hard, when life is difficult, when, when I experience just a sense of being overwhelmed, and I just feel I don't know any way forward, the resurrection brings tremendous hope. Because I, I realise that what I'm facing right now, it's a comma, it's not a full stop. In fact, full stops don't even exist. The resurrection points us to the fact that God has this wonderful plan into eternity. So you and I can go through the most impossible and overwhelming of seasons and we can get through it, praise God, because our suffering has a purpose. God actually uses our suffering. He doesn't waste it in his economy. He uses our suffering in such a way that we become more Christ-like. And more importantly, we can look ahead. When we suffer, it actually harnesses our focus towards Christ and towards all that he has planned. But if that wasn't the case, if a, resurre if a resurrection wasn't true, uh, and, and when we went through these moments and seasons and circumstances of suffering, what would be the point? What would be the point of having any kind of faith? We would try and use all of the different resources that this earth provides to overcome what it is that we were going through. And this is what so many of our, our non-believing friends and family try and do when they face a difficult moment. They almost turn to every possible avenue apart from Christ. And yet, so often, they fall short. They feel this emptiness and this struggle. And this is what would happen to us if we didn't have this hope of a resurrection. We would need to find some other reason for living because the reason we had chosen wasn't true. And John Piper, speaking on this very passage tonight, uh, said this about the resurrection. If it wasn't grounded in historical fact, and it wasn't a promised reality for each one of us. He said this, the resurrection of Jesus affects absolutely everything for me. It establishes Jesus as the son of God and it establishes him as having spoken truth in everything he says. Therefore, if the resurrection were proved false, then his word which governs my understanding of the Bible and the Bible which governs my understanding of all reality would fall to the ground. I would have to go like a beggar seeking for another vision of life. That would be a very tragic thing for me because not only do I believe that it is true that he rose from the dead, but I also find it very beautiful and satisfying. 
it is the most wonderful news in all the world that that would all evaporate if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So ask yourself a question tonight. Do I believe that God, the creator of the universe, could send his one and only son to earth to live amongst us as a man, to die for us and to then rise from the dead in order to bring us back into a right relationship with God. If we don't believe that God is this kind of God and that he really has done this for each one of us, then the truth is we don't believe in the God of the Christian faith. If we do believe that God is this kind of God and he has done this for you, then you'll see how important the resurrection is. It really does hold everything together. So that's the third point. Paul then underlines another fruit of not believing in the resurrection whilst also holding on to some belief in Jesus and the Christian faith. So he says, if the resurrection isn't true, then number four, we are false witnesses. So have a look at what Paul highlights in verse 15 of our passage. Paul says, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul says here, it's not just that we are preaching this pointless message, this, this message of, of no value whatsoever, but our entire lives are based on a falsehood because we've claimed something that God has never claimed. If the resurrection isn't true, I'm not saying this by the way, if the resurrection isn't true, this is what we're doing. So Paul is effectively saying that if these Corinthians are correct, then everything of who we are is based on a lie. So that's how strong he is with them. If you believe this, then this is what you're saying. Your life is a lie. He's wanting them to understand you can't play about with this. You can't just dabble into some troops of the Christian faith and doctrine and then dabble with some ideas of the world. You're either all in or all out. You need to hold on to the central tenets of the Christian faith. And you need, you need to see these ideas, first and foremost, as firmly planted in history if you claim to truly love and follow Jesus. And this is, this is a precise reason why Paul begins this chapter with these words to the Corinthian church. Starting in verse 1, he says verse 1 through to verse 8 in light of what he says in our passage, starting in verse 12. So Paul says in verse 1, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. And Paul's point here in all of that, in that section, is that the resurrection is true because of history. All of these people, Peter, the 12, 500, James, Paul himself, the apostles, they have all seen the risen Jesus. Therefore, to say the resurrection will not happen for those of us who follow Jesus is to say that Jesus has not risen from the dead 
And it's to say that these particular witnesses, including Paul, are liars. So Paul is just going back and he's saying, well, if you believe this, then here are all the consequences to you saying this. You're basically calling me a liar. Can't get around that tonight. You either believe that Christ, his claims, his actions, including his death and resurrection, are true, and we benefit from all of that because of our union with Christ, or you don't. So choose what you believe. Choose what you'll put your hope in. Choose who you'll serve in light of the truth of the resurrection. And Paul then highlights the final consequence for anyone who doesn't believe in the resurrection. So he says, if it's not true, then finally, number five, we're still in our sin. We're still in our sin. And let's just dig into to verses 16 to 19. Paul writes, for if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So we talk about sin a lot in this church. Um, and it's important we do that. But what is sin? We can say it a lot. We can talk about it a lot. But do we truly understand what sin is? Sin is what separates us from God. Our sin is, is us declaring to God that we do not need him. We would rather be independent from God than dependent in him. And our sin has consequence. The wages of sin is death. Meaning that for you and I to remain in our sin is for you and I to experience physical and spiritual death. All of which will have huge, huge consequences in eternity. And so without the resurrection... There is not only no solution for this problem of sin, there is also no prospect of any kind of future with God. And the consequence of no future for Paul is one where we are judged in our sin and we will all face an eternity separate from him. All of which would mean that for us to be a people who choose to love God and pursue him in our lives would, make, would not make any sense whatsoever because it would be all for naught. There wouldn't be any purpose behind it. And this is exactly why Paul says we should be pitied more than anyone if the resurrection isn't true. We have given ourselves over to something that is false and offers no blessing, no promise at the end of it. And he's again reinforcing this understanding you cannot have Christ without the resurrection. He's underlining again and again and again that, is, that there's no resurrection. To speak falsely of that is to speak something that makes no sense for anyone who would profess the name of Jesus. And so Paul makes this argument through these verses. And then finally, in verse 20, in light of unpacking all of that, he comes round to what he knows, what he believes, what he is absolutely convinced about. So in verse 20, he says, but as it is, it's a very important but there, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me just say finally, that word first fruits, it's an important phrase in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And it simply means this, something that has been given with the pledge and the promise that there is more to come. So, brothers and sisters, there really is more to come for us. God has promised this resurrection reality because Jesus is our first fruit. He already has been resurrected. So we have his promise. In light of the past, we have his promise of the future. We can rest our entire lives on this promise. 
because of what has happened and because of what he has promised. So as we close, let me leave you with this question. Um, how can the truth and the power of a resurrection become more and more a reality within our lives? How can the truth and the power of a resurrection become more and more a reality within our lives? And let me just suggest three things that we can do as a church family. Uh, the first one is this. Uh, we, can, we can sing resurrection truths, and this is something we've done already tonight. Uh, what I'm going to do in our WhatsApp group, I'm just going to highlight some, some really beneficial songs that, that underline the absolute beauty and satisfaction we can find in Christ as a result of his promise of a resurrection. So I'll send those across and just take time this week to rejoice in, in the Lord and his promise of a resurrection. So we can sing resurrection truth. Number two, we can read resurrection passages. We've spoken about already, there are many, many verses and passages that speak about the resurrection. And again, I can post some of these in WhatsApp. So take time to read and to meditate on God's word because without question, it really will change your life. If you rest your life on the truth of the resurrection, if you find your satisfaction in God's word and his promise of resurrection, it will change your, your thinking. It will change your desires. It will give you a longing to live for him more and more. It will give you a hopeful expectation of what he has planned. And perhaps the most important thing you can do is to read the gospel accounts. And just to... Take time to ask that God would illuminate your heart as you understand what happened in that particular morning. Ask God to lead you through the different gospel narratives that point towards the resurrection. And finally, number three, uh, pray resurrection promises. So in light of the resurrection, we can pray with a much greater confidence, a boldness as we come before the throne of grace. The resurrection has a direct impact on our lives today. And we can unpack these promises and pray through these promises. Um, and there's always that connection between God's word and our prayers. So we, we study what God's word says around the resurrection and we can then pray. We can use God's word as a resource in our prayers. So as we start this series uh, on the resurrection, um, I'll do that. I'll just share some, some helpful songs um, and passages in scripture. Um, let me just say, if I think everyone here tonight is on DBC uh, WhatsApp, so that's fine. But we're going to respond now uh, with worship. And as we respond, just let's take a moment to recognize that he has risen. And that has amazing consequences for us tonight. Uh, and I just want to give you space as well. If you feel challenged by any of that, if you would like prayer for anything, maybe you're finding something difficult in your life, you would like prayer for that. Uh, maybe you need prayer for healing. Maybe you're struggling with illness or ailment or a pain. We believe in the God who can and who does heal. And so we commit that to the Lord, trusting that he has the very best for you through that season. And we would also pray that God would give us a, a bigger vision of him. But ultimately, all of what we experience in our life is for his glory. We, we, don't, want, we don't want to take credit for, for anything that, that we uh, are blessed with in our lives. And that sometimes that can be just ways in which God has provided Sometimes we can look at God's blessing and try and take credit and get all the glory for it. But we, want, we don't want that. We want to be a people who fix our eyes on Jesus and who want to see God glorified in our lives. With all that we say, all that we do, all that we desire, we can't do that ourselves. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray that 
that God would change our hearts and that people would see us and they would see Christ and they would see this promise, this hope of a resurrection. So let's pray tonight as we now respond in these different ways. Uh, Father, we, we thank you that uh, we've had time just to unpack what your word says around the resurrection. And Lord, I pray that we would just be open and sensitive to your spirit, that, that you would guide us in the way forward and, and we wouldn't leave this space without in some way meeting with you. Lord, forgive us for just doing the usual church routine, the usual Christian thing. Lord, would you just awaken our hearts and bring us to that place where we go into this week with fresh expectation of how you might use us. Lord, we recognize that, that tonight, as we go into this week, there's going to be many, many opportunities for us to engage with non-believers. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would walk into those moments aware, conscious of what your still small voice is saying, what it is we should say, how it is we should say it, how we should respond in moments. Would you guide us, Lord? Would you enable us to be missional? Would you equip us to be expectant of how you might work in and through us so that people might see us and see Christ and that people may also have the same expectation we have, this hope of a resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.